Today we're joined by Mina Awami. Now Mina leads BBC Monitoring's jihadist media team and today we'll be talking about the latest developments in the online world of jihadist media. Mina, welcome to the podcast. Hi Mark. Maybe you could give us an introduction to you and maybe give us a bit of an insight into how you got into this line of work. Um, so yes, as you said, um, I had the jihadist media team at BBC Monitoring. And for those of you who don't know what BBC Monitoring does, BBC Monitoring's mission is to understand and report on what media around the world are saying. And that's really to inform BBC's overall journalism, as well as our users in the government and commercial organizations. Monitoring um, was set up in 1939 to cover Hitler's propaganda machine. And years you know, later, we're covering all sorts of different propaganda machines, including ISIS's propaganda machine, Al-Qaeda's. So the jihadist media team is made up of six journalists, myself included. And as you can imagine, we have a lot of experience in monitoring the activities and media operations of jihadist groups from IS to Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. And it's really that combination of constant watch over a long period of time that gives us that edge in terms of, you know, spotting trends as they emerge. Um, so we're always looking at all of these different factors about the jihadist media landscape. Now, in terms of how did I get into that um, field? Well, it's kind of a one thing led to another thing. It's, um, But I would say it's really kind of living the jihadi mess myself. I think it's all started with the U.S.-led invasion um, of Iraq in 2003, which I witnessed. And it was just really seeing the country where I grew up that was, you know, relatively secular country under the Ba'ath Party regime, just seeing the quick transformation and, you know, the rise of militant um, Islamic groups, whether it's, you know, Shia Muslims or Sunni Muslims. As I said, the transformation was, was very fast, but it was also very scary. And at the time, I worked for the United Nations, actually in the security information sector. And um, my daily job was to report on the daily security incidents, the threats. And a lot of those threats were part of what I was you know, living on a daily basis in Iraq. Um, it was informed by you know, the daily incidents, uh, you know, the, the trends that I was seeing in the country. And then you know, an opportunity came at, in the UK at uh, Royal Holloway University of London to work on a, a big project that was looking at online radicalization. Um, and I, was, I joined that project. I was very lucky to join that project. And, you know, one thing led to another and I moved from that project to another at the LSC. And, you know, finally, that brought me to the BBC, the Jihadist Media Team in 2013. Really uh, fascinating career there already. And maybe you could give us a historical overview of how uh, jihadists have used the online space. So from the early 2000s till about 2012, Jihadists really used the traditional discussion forums. It's kind of like, you know, you know, the websites and there's a like discussion section and, you know, members would discuss ideas. So that was what they used for years. And these were more like echo chambers. These were very highly controlled, regulated forums. Any kind of dissent or different opinions among the jihadists it would be removed by the administrators. Then I'd say between 2008 and 2010, Jihadists definitely dabbled with Facebook. And there were a number of, I remember what they called the invasion or the raid or the incursion of Facebook one and two, part three, but they didn't have a lot of success there. Even back then, Facebook was quick to remove jihadist content and accounts. The, it was the younger generation that were trying to convince you know, the old guard why it was important to move on to Facebook, because that's where the potential recruits are. That's where the young people are. Then 
between 2012 and 2013, there was a big push, an en masse move to Twitter. And one of the reasons behind this was um, the so-called Arab Spring. Jihadists felt they were really left behind. You know, all of a sudden they saw these young people organizing themselves and using Facebook and Twitter to organize all these protests. And regimes that were there for years were toppled, you know, as a result of these peaceful protests. And jihadists felt left behind. And so they figured, actually, we need to be there where the young people are. And so there was a move again, an en masse move to Twitter, where groups set up their official accounts. So IS or its predecessor had its official account there, Al-Qaeda's branches in, in, in Yemen and um, in, in North Africa. They all set up their accounts there. And so did the clerics and the ideologues. And that is what, you know, in, in terms of the move from one platform to another, this is really important. Once you have the heavyweights setting up shop on a platform, the rank and file feel, okay, so this is a platform that we can trust. And that's what then really pushes that move and you have more and more people joining. Whereas sometimes when you have a new platform and you have people, you know, jihadists who are not really established using it, there's probably more reluctance to embrace it um, compared to when the heavyweights join it. And I remember at the time in 2013, for example, Al-Qaeda, as it calls itself, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, um, AQIM, or Al-Qaeda in North Africa, they even launched a, a Q&A, and they invited the media, and they invited people to interact with them. They said, you know, this is great to have Twitter because, you know, we want to break the hegemony, as they said, of mainstream media. We want to bypass mainstream media. So this, is a, this was, you know, a great opportunity for them to reach a global audience without any filters. Um, so, you know, there were a number of these attempts to reach out and present a different picture. This all, of course, changed with um, with the beheading videos of IS in 2014. In the summer of 2014, there was a big push from Twitter to close down the accounts of IS and its supporters. Um, and of course, this eventually also affected Al-Qaeda. And for a while there, for months, IS still, you know, between 2014 and 2015, IS still tried to use Twitter, but it was through indirect ways. So they had a number of, you know, a, a, a network of front accounts that didn't say IS, you know, officially, but there were Abu so-and-so, Abu so-and-so. And we knew that these were actually IS media operatives and they were pushing out the official propaganda. Um, but after that, there was, you know, a further push to eliminate them. And for a while, they actually embraced the decentralized platforms so around August and September 2014, they used a range of decentralized platforms like Diaspora, Quitter, and Friendica. And all of a sudden, we saw official IS accounts, a string of them actually, on these platforms. And then they were again surfacing all the beheading videos, the nasty uh, propaganda. And again, of course, you know, you have reports on them in mainstream media. They get, you know, removed. They get shut down. And then... An opportunity came when Telegram launched this new feature um, called Channels in 2015. And actually, IS, even before that, it was already using Telegram as a means of communication and you know calls and everything. So again, there was another massive push, an en masse move from Twitter then to Telegram in 2015. And they never looked back really. They, you know, they jihadists loved Telegram. It offered them, you know, the you know, the privacy, the encryption a lot of flexibility, a lot of tools that were available, you know, the, the ability to um, embed your videos and your content within Telegram, the cloud, the space it offered, these were all very attractive to jihadists. So between 2015 
And late 2019, jihadists really, I mean, Telegram was their go-to platform. Now, within that time, it's not that they didn't try to go back to Twitter. I'll come back to Telegram in a bit, the clampdown. But, you know, just to say that jihadists are actually gutted that they can't properly exploit the popular web, you know, platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, that's where they really want to be. Even though they really use Telegram a lot still now, you know, for years, in my opinion, it's still the second best, you know, the best and the top platforms would be the popular platforms because they want to reach a global audience. Telegram, it's kind of back to the echo chamber in a sense. Yeah, like you say, I guess it's those... If you're on those mainstream platforms, um, that gives you more of a of a shot window, doesn't it, in terms of reaching out to mainstream society. Whereas if you are kind of pushed away on these uh, maybe lesser known platforms, some of which are a little bit more obscure, perhaps you're less inside that shot window, I guess, aren't you? But I mean, is Telegram still important to jihadist communities uh, online or is it is the picture more complex these days? I think both. I would say definitely Telegram is still a key platform for jihadists. Now, there was, of course, that unprecedented move by Telegram in November 2019 to eliminate the IS network from Telegram, but also the Al-Qaeda one. And I think, in my opinion, it was the first time that I saw the jihadist network, the operation confused, a bit unsure what to do. And the reason for that, and, you know, in my opinion, even moving forward, um, the impact comes when multiple platforms take action against these um, jihadist users. So, you know, of course, if, if, you know, if you have Twitter doing it or Facebook doing it, you know, they're pushed out. Of course, they're going to always use, you know, they, they can use Telegram, they can use other platforms. But what happens when all these platforms collectively take action? It kind of disrupts their operation. I wouldn't say, of course, it doesn't end it. It doesn't deal a massive blow they can't recover from but it certainly does disrupt it, at least temporarily. And I remember at the end of 2019, the network was definitely disrupted. And you could see them jumping from one platform to another, experimenting with one platform after another. And of course, with that experimentation comes fragmentation, fragmentation of the message, issues of trust. You know, every time they embrace a new platform or not embrace, experiment with a new platform, they're always asking questions and you see them in their discussions. Can we trust this? Will they share our data with um, with the government, with security forces, with a third party? How will they use our data? And you can see um, warnings from media groups. Um, you know, don't use TamTam or Hoop. They're you know they 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 collaborate with I don't know governments and don't use this platform. Um, so at the time, you saw a lot of discussions because they were using simultaneously. They were using trying still to use Telegram, but also going on to TamTam and Hoop and um, uh, Nanbox and lots of other platforms that they experimented with. Yeah. And also they were asking these questions, can we trust these platforms? In your view, I mean, as, as someone who is at the coalface of this uh, on, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, in terms of, you know, you, you fast forward right up to the current day, would you say there is a there is a kind of a, a platform today that is like the centre of gravity for, for jihadists? I think I would say the centre of gravity still is Telegram. Jihadists have a love-hate relationship with Telegram. On the one hand, you know, they've complained about Telegram in the past and they said, oh, you know, it can't be trusted just like other platforms. But on the other hand, they see that they can get some opportunities through Telegram. But along with Telegram, they use a range of other platforms, such as Rocket Chat, the decentralised Rocket Chat. Um, they use Signal, they use Element. But 
But I feel that each one of these have, you know, serves a different function, or at least there's a different focus. So for example, for Rocket Chat, which is, you know, which offers jihadists a lot of stability and resilience, but it's not because of the, you know, the the nature of the platform itself, it is a bit clunky. It's not very user-friendly. Um, I feel they use it more for um, as a point of dissemination of material, as an archive, as a place where, you know, material is stable and draw on constantly and then disseminate it widely. You know, Signal is used for more of the encrypted messaging among the members. Uh, but for Telegram, they still, they're kind of, there's still constant efforts even as their accounts get shut down, there are constant efforts to go back to Telegram. So I would say Telegram still the center of gravity, but alongside that, they use a range of other platforms, you know, for the sake of resilience, actually. Have online crackdowns on jihadists affected the way that you and your team go about its work online? Uh, has it made it, made it more difficult for you guys to, to track this activity or indeed has there been uh, new opportunities opening up? What, what's your view on that? It definitely has complicated um, or as, as well as prolonged the process of going out and finding material because, you know, in the past, it used to be all neatly contained in one platform, more or less, which was Telegram. Um, and you'd have Al-Qaeda, IS, their supporters, media groups, all in one platform. So again, very contained and neat. Um, and then since then, we've had them scattered across various platforms and so if you want to check something, if you want to do any kind of data analysis, then you would have to go across various platforms. And of course, each platform has its different ways of use. You know, we have to, you know, we also have to familiarize ourselves with these new platforms. Um, there may be platforms that, you know, are, you know, we're restricted, you know, at, you know, because of our editorial policy, before, because of various laws here, we're restricted. Um, so that's that's another barrier. Um, but also, I think, you know, the, the, you know, for, for, for these platforms themselves, you know, some of them, you know, these are small companies running them. So I think it's also been, you know, difficult for these platforms to cope. So, you know, you, you push these jihadists away from, you know, the more um, established platforms and apps, and they go on to these smaller ones that probably don't have a lot of experience in dealing with jihadists, a big jihadist presence on their platforms, they don't have the resources to fight them and move them out. Um, and so you have a lot of, you know, jihadists lingering on these platforms, exploiting them for months. Um, but it's, you know, it's also very interesting. It, you know, you learn a lot. And I think jihadists are also experimenting and learning. And we learn as we go, we, you know, we see how they're behaving, and what they're doing and how they're coping. And I think it's just interesting to see because it kind of gives you insight into the future, you know, when, you know, if something like this happens again, if there is a clampdown, where are they likely to go? How are they likely to behave? So yeah, it's all very interesting. It's all go, you know, part of that going down the rabbit hole, which is really fascinating. Got it. Um, so in terms of the, the future of this particular area, then, Mina, I mean, you know, prediction time, I guess, for want of a better <laughs> phrase. Um, you know, where, where do you see this online community heading? Because it seems to be always on the move. I mean, you could say the same thing of of a number of different extremist uh, communities out there. But these guys always uh, appear to be on the move, always looking for, for the next platform or, or, or whatever else. And at the same time, of course, you've got online crackdowns being taken forward in to various different levels of intensity on various different platforms. So, you know, you've got this cat and mouse game ongoing, but, but where do you see Islamist extremist activity in the online space heading? I mean, say, 
I mean, the next five years, for example? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a million dollar question. But I guess um, a lot of it, you know, depends on, you know, the action that will be taken by countries, by governments, by these big, you know, technology companies and the smaller technology companies, you know, what kind of action will be taken against these um, the, these jihadist groups? Of course, a lot has been done already, but will there be more collaboration across platforms? Because I think that will really make a difference. And as I said, in late 19, um, 2019, we saw the impact of that when, you know, when, when, when it happened simultaneously, the clampdown, how it affected, how it disrupted their operations. So I think it depends, again, on policy, on action um, against um, jihadists online. But of course, you know, jihadists, they don't have access to um, mainstream media or, you know, they can't distribute flyers on the ground. So they will always fight for their presence on uh, online. That's their only means of, you know, communicating their messages. Um, so, of course, they will always try their best, you know, whatever they can to stay online. Um, and in terms of, you know, what they will use in future, it really depends because, you know, I would say, you know, just tell me what is the the next big um, app? Um, what is the next big platform where, you know, young people, that young people will embrace? That's where you'll find jihadists. You know, they'll always look for the next, you know, popular platform. But also, you know, another factor for them is, you um, is um, is privacy and anonymity and encryption and you know the security of um, of, of you know people on these platforms. So they'll look they'll look for the combination of you know the popularity of a platform and you know whatever safety and encryption it could give that it could give them. Um, and, you know you know and you know they they they've used app uh, they've developed their own apps. So at least you know it's it remains to be seen if they'll do more of that. You know. But um, again, with apps, they're vulnerable. You know, you could work very hard on creating your own app, like a website, and it gets shut down. Um, but recently, for example, we've had um, a, a very popular, you know, high-profile pro-Al-Qaeda media group um, launching its own app, um, and it's been there for months. Um, so that's another area where they might try to experiment with, of course, decentralized platforms. I mean, they offer them a lot of stability and resilience already. So there might be kind of innovations in that area. It's currently, I don't think it's as popular as other platforms only because it's quite closed. So they don't have that openness where they want to reach, you know, global audience. But, you know, uh, you know, these, the developers of decentralized platforms, I mean, the whole selling point is that no one can take action against the servers that are run by the users. And that is a very, you know, attractive uh, prospect for jihadists. Thank you, Mina. Well, it's been a really fascinating conversation and great listening to your insight. Thanks so much for sharing your insight and hopefully speak to you again soon. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. To learn more about how James can support you and your organisation with social media research, email the team at intelligence.unit at james.com.